Shall we hear God's word now? Book of, the book of Judges, chapter 18, beginning with verse 1. In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. For until that day their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. So the children of Dan sent five men of their family from, the, from their territory, men of valor from Zorah and Eshtaol, to spy out the land and search it. They said to them, Go, search the land. So they went to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. While they were at the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. They turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What do you have here? He said to them, Thus and so Micah did for me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. So they said to him, Please inquire of God that we may know whether the journey on which we go will be prosperous. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The presence of the Lord be with you on your way. So the five men departed and went to Laish. They saw the people who were there, how they dwelt safely in the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. There were no rulers in the land who might put them to shame for anything. They were far from the Sidonians, and they had no ties with anyone. Then the spies came back to their brethren at Zorah and Eshtael, and their brethren said to them, What is your report? So they said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and indeed it is very good. Would you do nothing? Do not hesitate to go. And enter to possess the land. When you go, you will come to a secure people and a large land, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. And six hundred men of the family of the Danites went from there, from Zorah and Eshtel, armed with weapons of war. Then they went up and encamped in Kirjath Jearim in Judah. Therefore they call that place Mahanadan to this day. There it is, west of Kirjath Jearim. And they passed from there to the mountains of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to spy out the country of Laish answered and said to their brethren, Do you know that there are in these houses an ephod, household idols, a carved image and a molded image? Now, therefore, consider what you should do. So they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite man, to the house of Micah, and greeted him. The six hundred men, armed with their weapons of war, who were of the children of Dan, stood by the entrance of the gate. Then the five men who had gone to spy out the land went up. Entering there, they took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image. The priest stood at the entrance of the gate with the 600 men who were armed with weapons of war. When these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Be quiet. Put your hand over your mouth and come with us. Be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest to the household of one man, or that you be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? So the priest's heart was glad, and he took the ephod, the household idols, and the carved image, and took his place among the people. Then they turned and departed and put the little ones, the livestock, and the goods in front of them. When they were a good way from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house gathered together and overtook the children of Dan. And they called out to the children of Dan. So they turned around and said to Micah, What ails you that you have gathered such a company? So he said, You have taken away my gods which I made, and the priest... And you have gone away. Now what more do I have? How can you say to me, what ails you? And the children of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry men fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the children of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. So they took the things Micah had made, and the priest who had belonged to him, and went to Laish, to a people quiet and secure, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. There was no deliverer, 
because it was far from Sidon, and they had no ties with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rahab. So they rebuilt the city and dwelt there. And they called the name of the city Dan after the name of Dan, their father, who was born to Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. Then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. Amen. We'll end our reading there at the end of Judges 18. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we pray that you would enable us to see in your word, as in a mirror which shows us our true face, the reality of what we need. May we see, Lord, where we fall short. May we see where we are not what we ought to be. But, Lord, may we see this not for our discouragement, but for our correction. And so, along with where we have gone astray, may we also see our Lord Jesus Christ held forth to us as the true, the ultimate, the all-sufficient answer to every one of our needs. In his name we pray. Amen. Whenever there's a sermon, on a long passage especially, you have to make some decisions. You have to choose what to highlight and what to skate over. In this story about Micah and his Levite priest and the tribe of Dan, what I've chosen to do is to basically look at it from three different points of view. Last time we were here, we looked at it primarily from Micah's point of view. He's going to disappear from the scene, a disappointed, a broken man in our passage today. There's also the point of view of the Danites, and that's what we're going to look at today, considering these 605 men with their appurtenances as representing one point of view. And then, Lord willing, on a future occasion, we'll look at everything from the young Levites' point of view. With that, of course, we're making some choices about what to highlight, what to leave out, and there would always be more. There would always be more that you could bring out. But especially with a longish chapter like Judges chapter 18, some form of selection is essential. So today we're looking at this passage, this whole story really, including chapter 17 as well, from the standpoint of the Danites. Now, of course, this was one of the tribes, one of the sons of Jacob was named Dan. He was given that name because his mother thought that God had judged in her cause, had awarded the victory to her when he was born. And the Danites went on to become a whole tribe. Now, where many of the tribes were made up of multiple clans, in Dan, at least at first, they kind of got off to a slow start. And there's a variation in this chapter over whether they're called a tribe or whether they're called a clan. Now, when Joshua distributed the promised land, the Danites were assigned a portion in the southern part of the country. And in fact, if you remember, Samson was from the tribe of Dan, and he lived in the south of the country. He was constantly rubbing elbows with members of the tribe of Judah. But the Danites had not been able to take possession of their land. There were two reasons for that, of the whole of their land, I should say. There were two reasons for that. One is their lack of faith. The other is the fact that the Amorites oppressed them and had iron chariots. 
And so where they were supposed to have some hill country and some flat country, they hadn't been able to get out of the hill country. Well, now they're starting to feel a little squeezed for space. So they choose five men, five brave men, to go and to scout out the land and to find more room for them to live. And those men went through all of Israel, traveling northwards, and finally got up to a city called Laish, which was actually outside of the boundaries of Israel. But they had a big rampart, but no wall, and they had a quiet, peaceful life. They were self-sufficient. They didn't have dealings with others. And the Danite scouts thought, now there's an easy target. So they went back and they encouraged the tribe to go. Ultimately, it wound up that there was an advanced group at any rate of 600 who went and who undertook the conquest of that city. We don't know if that was all of the Danites who moved north, was just this group of 600 and change, or if they were just the first wave and others came behind them. Obviously, since Samson and his family and others were still in the south, the tribe of Dan did not as a whole move up to Laish, Some of them went up there, and some of them remained down south. On their way to conquer Laish, they decide to stop by Micah's house again, and this time they decide to take all of his religious installation, to take his graven image and his carved image, to take his priest and his ephod and his household idols, the teraphim as they're called, and to go ahead and set those up in their new sanctuary up north. Well, that's the broad lines of the story. But in order to understand what it means, it's important to recognize the echoes of other scripture that is happening here. You remember there have been previous scouting missions, correct? You remember in the book of Numbers, before Israel came into the promised land, Moses sent 12 men to spy out the land. And they went and they traveled up and down and they brought back in one way a very good report. They said, oh, the land is amazing. Look, it took two of us to carry this cluster of grapes. But they also said, we're never going to be able to conquer it. We were like grasshoppers before the inhabitants of the land. The cities are walled up to heaven. And in their unbelief, they discouraged the people of God from entering the promised land. And that led to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Well, then Joshua also sent out spies, and the spies brought back a very different report. They said, everybody is terrified of us. We can easily conquer with God's help. And on that occasion, they went in. Now, here's another spy story. People are going to scout out the land, and they bring back a good report. You think, hey, these guys are like Caleb and Joshua. They're saying, we can do it. God is with us. Let's go and conquer. But there's something that's not quite right. Where did they get the information that God was with them? Well, they got it from Micah's sanctuary when they consulted his young Levite. They weren't really asking God. They were asking this priest for hire at a shrine that was characterized by idols for good news from God. They exhort the people not to be lazy, not to be slack, to go up and possess, and God will bless them. And they did have success. Everything did go their way, but there's more to the story than that. This is like a parody of what ought to be happening. And by being a parody of what ought to happen, it exposes to us the reality of false religion. 
You remember how it opens. In those days, there was no king in Israel. These last chapters of Judges have that. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. You have that in chapter 17, verse 6. Then you have in those days, there was no king in Israel. In chapter 18, verse 1, you have in those days, there was no king in Israel. Again, in chapter 19. And then towards the end of the book, you have again, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, there's this refrain that is binding these chapters together, that is telling us what is actually happening here. Why are we being told this? Now, we're not being told this because a king would prevent all of these problems. The subsequent history of Israel teaches that. They had asked Gideon to be a ruler over them, and Gideon very piously said, no, 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 I won't rule you. The Lord is your ruler. But then Gideon himself went ahead and set up a shrine with an ephod, and that became a stumbling block to Gideon, to his household, to all Israel. Gideon's son Abimelech had himself crowned king, and that was a royal disaster. And, of course, many subsequent kings from Saul onwards would prove to be a big disappointment. So what's going on here? Well, we're finding out that this is what the people of God are like when they do not genuinely recognize the lordship of God. When God is their king in name, but in name only. They still have the pretense. They still have the profession. They still have the outside. They have the form of godliness. But they deny the power of godliness, as Paul describes false religion in the New Testament. You see, false religion is not just what professedly worships a different god, what uses different religious paraphernalia. There can be false worship here in our church where we call upon the true God. They were using God's name. They were asking for his blessing, but they were way off base. And you see that coming out in their behavior. You see that when they want to secure worship for themselves, don't they? They say, you know, we're going by Micah's house. And boy, he's got all this really nice religious installation. Micah's mom had somehow become wealthy and they devoted a fair amount of their wealth to establishing the shrine. They probably had it as a money-making endeavor. People would pay for religious services from this priest that they'd hired. And so it all worked out. It was another income stream for them. But now a band of armed men is passing by and they're like, you know what? We would like to have that. So they go, and by force, they take all of that. Now, of course, we have questions. What good are gods that you can steal from another person? What good is a priest who stabs you in the back the moment he gets a better offer? Why would you even bother to chase after gods who can be stolen? And what exactly do the Danites think they're going to accomplish by setting up a shrine? They know how they got it. They got it by force. Well, those questions do not seem to occur to Micah or to the Danites. They occur to us, hopefully, but they were not occurring to the people in our story. And so from the Danites' point of view, this is an amazing success. We went up, we found a great place. We were 
successful in motivating other people to go along with us. We managed to get all these amazing religious paraphernalia, these cool worship dummies on our way up. And then we attacked, we conquered. This is great. It's clear that God is blessing us. God is on our side. We secured his favor and we are on top of the world. The conquest went well. They had what they wanted. Or did they? Well, from a purely worldly perspective, yes, they did. They had a priest they could control. He says to them, what are you doing? They say, be quiet. Come with us. Is it better to you to be a father and a priest to one tribe or to just one man, one family? Well, that feels like a promotion. He's got a bigger church now. So he goes with them. But under what conditions? They can tell him, be quiet. Don't tell us we're doing the wrong thing. When he said, what are you doing? You're taking this stuff. Be quiet. That's very similar to what they say to Micah. Micah runs after them to protest. They say, don't let your voice be heard among us. We can't answer for what these people who are ready for violence might do to you. How are they living? They're living on worldly terms. Success means things go my way. Does it matter if you had to use threats and violence to get what you wanted? Does it matter if you went outside of the land of promise in order to accomplish your goal? No. What matters is I got my way. The Danites are doing what is right in their own eyes. Now they dress it up. They make it sound like it's godly and religious and pious. But what is it? It is simply worldly. I will get my own way, and I will do it by any means necessary. Not thy kingdom come, but my kingdom come. Not thy will be done, but my will be done. Why are worldly people religious? Because they think that they can use God or use religion in order to get their own way. Now, there's two different ways to approach it. You can approach it from, well, God is, exists, and God is unpredictable, and God is irascible, so I need to make sure I don't get on God's bad side. And as long as I don't get on God's bad side, then I can have my own way. So I'll, I'll respect God to that degree. That's one element that enters into it. Another element that can enter into it is, well, God can really help me. God can make things go easier, so I'll make sure to secure his favor in one way or another. And I'm not saying that people are all one or all the other. I think a lot of times there's probably a blend of those two ingredients. But those are the two ingredients. Let's not make God mad so he doesn't become a problem for us. Let's see if we can get his blessing so that things go smoothly for us. This is why a lot of worldly people are religious. Now, it's easy for us to say that and think, yeah, you know, I know somebody like that. I know people who are exactly like that. You're describing my neighbor. You're describing my friend. You're de- okay, but what about here? What about us? This is not something that's happening outside of Israel. This is happening among God's chosen people. What is our religion about? Why are we godly? Why do we go to church? Why do we pray before meals? Why do we do these other things that we do? Is it about God? Is it about God's kingdom? Or is it, 
Well, we need to make sure God doesn't have a reason to stop me from getting my own way. We're human beings. We're sinful. We're selfish. We're egotistical. We also face this temptation. We know that every blessing comes from God. So success in business comes from God. Well, do we want God's blessing on our work, on our business? Yes, we do. Do we want God's blessing on our business by any means necessary? Are we willing to say, no, we're going to do the right thing, even if it costs us, even if it's hard, even if it's challenging? We're going to lose money. We're going to lose opportunities rather than go against God. Okay, say you've gone that far. Is that just so God won't blight your business concerns? Or is that because it's the right thing to do? Is that because that's how you honor and glorify God in your business? I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be uncharitable. I'm not trying to cast accusations. But you see what's happening here. They're wanting a priest. They're asking for him to ask God if their journey will be blessed. They're building a shrine when they conquer this new territory. You see all of the religious activity. You see the form of godliness. But where is the power? And the same thing can happen to us. This is not a hypothetical. This is real Christianity. This is genuine church life. If our behavior is kept in line only by fear that God will not let us have our own way, then that's not actually godliness. However nice it looks from the outside, the heart is missing. That's not arising because we love the Lord our God. That's not arising out of gratitude. That's arising out of thinking, God could really cause me problems. Do you see how that's not godliness? Do you see how that's not genuine worship? That's not trust. What is true faith? True faith is a hearty trust. A hearty trust doesn't say, I better keep on God's good side or he could really cause me some serious problems. That's not a hearty trust. That's a cringing fear. Now, it is true. God can cause us problems. I'm not denying that. But that's where we have to test our agenda. What is our goal? What is our plan? What is our ambition? What are we hoping to accomplish? The Danites wanted a nice, quiet place to live where they could be undisturbed, where they could have room, where they could, yes, have their own way. Well, we can test ourselves along that dimension as well. When it comes to worship, when it comes to how we serve God, do we say, I'm going to serve God how I want to serve God? That's what they're doing with all of these idols. That's what Micah's doing. That's what the Danites are doing. You remember Micah said, now the Lord will bless me. I have a Levite as my priest. He's thinking he's going to secure the Lord's blessing now that he's put all this effort, now that he's demonstrated his commitment, and now that he's got a high-class Levite as the priest. He doesn't know God at all. He doesn't understand a thing. You think God is manipulated by these little images? You think God is propitiated by fancy dress? 
You think God is impressed by your religious shows? Oh, you need to read the prophets if you think that. God can say that he hates, he abhors, he despises the very sacrifices and feast days that he had instituted. Why does he tell them that? Because they did all of that as a cover for unrighteous behavior. They were willing to be very religious as long as they could also use threats and violence, as long as they could also be dishonest, as long as they could deceive their neighbor, as long as they could run around on their wives. Is this just an Old Testament problem? You know the answer to that. We have this in the church as well. So there's a couple of big applications. One is everything went very well for the Danites from their worldly point of view. That didn't mean that God was for them. And that's hinted at in the end of the chapter when it mentions that their shrine was functioning, that they had this family of not quite correct priests until the day of the captivity of the land or the whole time that the house of God was in Shiloh. Shiloh was destroyed. The ark was taken into captivity by the Philistines. The whole north was carried into captivity in 722. Now, hundreds of years went by, but God's judgment did eventually come. Do not judge by your success whether God is pleased with your way or not. The way to know if God is pleased with your way is not by how you feel about it, and it's not by how well it worked out. It's by whether it lines up with his word or not. That's the test. Is it in keeping with Scripture? Do that with your church. Do that with your business. Do that with your family life. Do that with every dimension of your life. Am I doing the right thing? How do you know? God's word, not, well, it worked out. That wasn't too bad. Well, I got away with it. That is not a good measure. That's a terrible indicator. God's word sets the standard for right and wrong. You see what the Danites do. They basically become like the world around them. Micah can't get anything back. They stole from Micah. Of course, Micah had previously stolen from his mom, so what goes around comes around, right? But now he's overpowered. He's overwhelmed by a superior force. The strong take what they can, and the weak bear what they must. That's life in the world. A king would not change that, because a king would just be the biggest bully around. He would take what he wanted, and the weak would bear what they had to. And Israel lived that as well. Unless, unless you had a king whose throne was founded in righteousness, unless you had a king whose belt around his waist was righteousness, unless you had a king who truly ruled in keeping with God's law. You know who I'm talking about. There will be disorder. The strong will take what they want until We bow to Jesus Christ as Lord. When we recognize him as the king, then we don't all do whatever is right in our own eyes. 
and we don't all just suck it up when somebody's stronger, then we serve the Lord. We do what is right in his eyes. Then we have the power and not just the form of godliness. We call Jesus Lord. Is that verified by our behavior? Amen.